0: I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On February 13th, 2017, 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Libby German went missing during what should have been a fun hiking trip in Delphi, Indiana. The following day, their bodies were found along that very trail sparking a double homicide investigation that garnered national media attention. But even with all the attention, the case appeared cold. For years, police did not disclose key details related to the case, including the cause of death and suspect leads, despite the significant pieces of evidence that were found, such as audio and video footage of the suspect. Now, over six years later, one major breakthrough has been made. 50-year-old Richard Allen was arrested in October of 2022 in connection with the murders of young Abby and Libby. Documents, which were unsealed Wednesday, June 28th, revealed that Allen allegedly confessed to the crimes during jailhouse calls with his wife and mother. Journalist Anya Kane and attorney Kevin Greenlee have been closely following the Delphi murders and petitioned for the court to release the documents in Allen's case. The duo co-host the Murder Sheet podcast, and together they've uncovered pieces of information which have been pivotal for the case and even examined notable leads within the investigation. Today, they join me with the latest updates out of the Delphi case and discuss their involvement with the investigation throughout the years.
1: So on February 13th, 2017, two teenage girls, 14-year-old Liberty German and 13-year-old Abigail Williams, who were best friends, left to go on a walk at the trails around Delphi, Indiana, a small city in Carroll County. This is between Indianapolis and Chicago. And they go out, they're having fun, they're taking photos for Snapchat, then they disappear. A search reveals the next day that they had both been unfortunately murdered. And not only that, but Libby actually managed to capture footage of a man approaching them on this old railroad bridge, that they had been walking on. So she actually very bravely captured an image of her killer and this sort of prompts a huge investigation. Um, years of online speculation follow the case. There's a ton of secrecy. And then finally, in the fall of 2022, investigators finally actually arrest somebody in the case. And that man's name is Richard Allen. He is a, was a CVS employee locally in Delphi And very much under the radar for years. But now we're suddenly hurtling towards an actual trial in this case and possibly answers for both Libby and Abby's families and the wider community and just the people around the world that have come to care about these girls.
0: Anya, you mentioned all the secrecy. Why? What was the reason behind the lack of information for the public during that time?
1: I think there was probably some very good motivations behind the lack of information for the public. I think investigators wanted to protect this case. That means keeping information held back so that they can vet different tips and also ensure that they're not influencing the killer's behavior in any way. Unfortunately, it also had the effect of basically spurring uh, sort of ridiculous online rumors for years And basically confusing people. Because there's so much limited information, people would turn to anywhere they could get it. Sometimes that meant conspiracy theories or people needlessly accusing the families of something. Um, So it could get very nasty online for a long time because of this, even if the motivations were good. Uh, I think that there was an element of like when there's an information vacuum people are just going to speculate. And so maybe there should be a balance, but I I can definitely understand why police wanted to certainly keep certain information held back for a long time.
0: Kevin, can you weigh in on that? So there was a gag order issued in this case, which prevented participants from speaking publicly about it, but as well, police declined to release a lot of fundamental information about the case, about even the manner of death and such. So can you speak to that balance and why, as the case progressed, those Participants made the decisions they did.
2: I think they were really interested in doing everything they could to make it possible for the investigation to reach a successful conclusion. And I'll give you an example. Uh, one, One key piece of evidence that was not mentioned to the public for many years, not until after the arrest, was that an unspent cartridge from a gun was found lying between the two bodies of these girls. And the reason that was not mentioned was because if the killer became aware that he had perhaps inadvertently left that there, then he almost certainly would have gotten rid of the gun that it had been ejected from, because that gun would at least in theory link him to the crime. But because the information about that bullet was held back, he had no reason to be aware that he had perhaps inadvertently left that there. And so he hung onto the gun. And now prosecutors claim that they have a gun that they recovered from Richard Allen's home, which they believe they can link to that bullet.
1: And I'll, I'll add to that, um, Emily, it's, it's a situation where now the considerations change now that we're going towards trial. Prosecutors and police feel they have the guy. They would not make this arrest if they didn't they are certain that richard allen is the killer now the defense is going to have their day in court and to say that this is an innocent man being prosecuted wrongly but at the same time when you have that certainty on the side of law enforcement and the prosecutor all this information is going to come out in court anyways so the considerations change they don't necessarily need to hold back things like the bullet they don't necessarily need to hold back all of the different information they collected, because we're no longer in that investigative phase. For the most part, we are in the phase of going to court and seeing if a jury will convict Richard Allen.
0: On that note, part of the expectation of our court system is that sides share information with each other, which sometimes sounds a little um, counterintuitive to the public, but it's partly what sort of upholds that sanctity is the fact that there are no big shocks so that each side can prepare adequately um, and protect the integrity of the process. But the defendant here is aiming to withhold some information, withhold some elements of his defense from the prosecution. Can you guys share a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, uh, there's been some uh, ex parte filings in this case. And ex parte means that the filings do not include all parties. And what that involves is this is a publicly funded defense. These people working on behalf of Richard Allen are public defenders. So that means the expenses that they incur while representing Allen are paid for by the public and therefore have to be approved by the judge. And so That means basically that if they want to hire an expert or do particular tests, they have to go to the judge and get the judge's approval. And, of course, it would not really be fair for the prosecutor to know in advance, oh, they're going to this particular expert and they're going to use this particular test. Because then if the defense ends up not using that test, then that would give uh, the prosecutor a bit of a tip off on perhaps uh, a weakness in the case. Now, of course, if they do end up using any tests performed by these experts, as you indicate, uh, the defense would have to notify the prosecution of that, because there's no surprises in the actual courtroom.
0: And I just want to touch on for a moment that, as well, part of the reasoning, or at least that was proffered uh, for the lack of transparency throughout the case was the fact that many witnesses were minors. So that was an additional layer of protection that the court was aiming to ensure. Okay, so there have been some sort of massive explosive developments. So let's bring viewers up to speed about what has just been released.
1: Absolutely. So essentially, given that we are going into the pre-trial phase and everything's going to come out in court, and also given that you know, this kind of online swamp, if you will, of rumors and sort of kind of just ridiculous theories continues to proliferate, uh, despite the fact that, you know, this is going to be happening in open court. We got interested in sort of basically being able to have the public access the documents that should be public in this case, that would be public in any other case. And we were seeing again and again that, even when defense attorneys and the prosecutor were not asking for documents to be kept private, that they were being not released to the public. So there seemed to be some sort of issue, and it didn't seem like it was intentional on the part of any of the court officers. Uh, We sort of hypothesized that may have been people behind the scenes who were scared to release something or may have been worried that they were violating the gag order. And of course, that only applies to people talking to the media. It has nothing to do with anything in court. Um, All of that should be released unless it's officially sealed by one side or the other. And so basically, um, Kevin and another wonderful attorney named Shay Hughes drafted a filing, basically saying um, to the judge, hello, we would like to be able to have the public access all the filings that You know you could release uh nothing that's you know nothing that's privileged nothing that's uh meant to be sealed but just all the stuff that you guys weren't even sealing in the first place that should be public and we were very gratified that judge gull the judge in this case who you know has a reputation for being very meticulous agreed with that assessment i don't even know if she realized that things were not being made public and basically went through and decided what things would normally be released and just kind of released those so we actually got all at once some pretty high level you know updates that in any normal court case would have already been released but now we're getting it all at once um i think things that stand out for me emily are more details on the confessions that we first heard about at the last june 15th court hearing where you have richard allen allegedly making you know five to six confessions about the crime or incriminating statements what have you And we also got more information about how he came on the radar in the first place back in 2022.
0: So share more about that, please, for viewers.
1: So basically with 2022, he first came on the radar in 2017. He approaches a Department of Natural Resources employee who's helping with the Delphi investigation. The murders have just happened. And he says, hey, I was on the trails that day, just wanted to flag with you. And so this is a very brief interaction. Now, our reporting indicates that somehow that tip essentially got lost in the shuffle. Basically, a clerical error, which, of course, is very upsetting. And a lot of people wonder if there's something more to that. But that's what we're reporting. That's what we've been hearing. So just human error can happen, even in an investigation with a lot of dedicated people working on it. So this does not get found out until 2022. Someone's reviewing some of the old tips, sees this and says, we need to look at this again. This is a man putting himself on the trails that day and also describing his outfit, which is not dissimilar from Bridge Guy. So then investigators re-interview Richard Allen. They talk him through everything. He says he was on the trails. He says he was wearing a blue Carhartt jacket and an outfit not dissimilar to Bridge Guy. He says that he has guns and knives at his house. Uh, He kind of talks them through it. He says he was on the bridge, right? He says that he saw these other girls, this group of three girls who also noticed him. And, you know, they get additional information from his wife, Kathy, that he does have guns and knives at the house. Based on that, investigators file a search warrant. They find his gun. They end up linking that to the bullet that was the unspent round found between the bodies of Libby and Abby. And, um, you know, basically the rest is history.
0: And tell us a little bit more about that online account, because, you know, as part of that, you said the online swamp of, of people who are eager to participate and help solve. But there's also an element now that we might potentially be a second person. Can you share about that and whether that has traction?
2: Well, after the arrest was made, the prosecutor in the case, Nicholas McClellan, actually said publicly, we have reason to believe other people might be involved. He hasn't really elaborated on that since then, so we're not 100% certain what exactly he meant or who he might have been referring to. But with that said, certainly earlier in the case, there was talk about an online account that was run by a man named Kagan Klein. This is an Instagram account in the name of Anthony Schatz, which was used to catfish young girls. Uh, He was posing as a very handsome man and he would try to uh, cajole them into sending him revealing photographs and images of himself. So whether or not there's a link between that account and what happened to these girls is unclear at this time.
1: And we'll say we have actually interviewed Kagan Klein, and he himself you know, very vehemently denies having anything to do with the murders. His account was discovered through the investigation into the murders. So at this point, it's either basically... That was a lead that, you know, investigators did their due diligence on and perhaps can set it aside. Or, you know, if there's some connection, we certainly haven't heard about it at this time. But I would say in an investigation of this size, it definitely makes sense that they would pursue as many avenues as possible. And, you know, just going into it because they don't want to leave any stone unturned.
0: Right. And um, Kevin, I'm just going to ask a, a really basic question that oftentimes a lot of people have, which is that in light of this revelation that, you know, it, it wasn't part of the, the sealed order, but it just released. Now we have him on the phone talking to two different people, confessing essentially over five times to the murder. So the, the question is, all right, well, then why are our tax dollars paying to defend this person who has confessed? Why can't this just be wrapped up? What's the legal answer to people who have that question?
2: Well, it's a complicated uh, situation because it's not uncommon in crimes, first of all, to have the phenomenon of false confessions, where people say they are involved with a crime, even if they had nothing to do with it. And what exactly he said, we don't know if he went into details, which would have potentially included little bits of information that would be used to confirm that what he said was true or not. And another key thing to remember here is that according to the defense attorneys, at the time Richard Allen made these statements, he was not in a competent state of mind. They allege that due to the treatment he has received while incarcerated, he has essentially lost uh, his competency. Uh, and we've heard stories including there's a document in the files from another inmate there who say that people are constantly yelling at richard allen they're saying you're a kid killer you should uh, kill yourself and their contention is that after months of that sort of treatment he essentially had a breakdown and so therefore whatever confessions he may have made not to be relied upon
1: and if I may jump in I, I think just in the macro sense our democratic institution our our, our sort of society our legal system essentially relies upon everybody whether they're guilty innocent having you know thorough and robust defense and the reason for that is, is not just to protect guilty people sometimes it can feel hard you know these are you know this is a horrible person or you know in this case, This guy doesn't deserve this. But I think it's for everybody, all citizens. Um, It's important that the state, you know, not have to prove their case and not just be able to steamroll somebody, even if it's a strong case against them. So it's beyond anything about this case. It's beyond Richard Allen, whether he's guilty, whether he's innocent. It's just more about the system requiring adversity and strong defense attorneys being willing to say, prove it, Um, you know, show us the evidence, prove it to the jury. Uh, It only works if everybody is functioning at their best and people sometimes forget, but the prosecution has so much power. They have the police on their side. They have, you know, all this investigative capacity and they have the, you know, they can take you and throw you in prison and, you know, they can ruin your life, basically. So what our system says is in order to be able to do that, you have to first get over the hurdle of, you know, the defense attorney being able to make their case and trying to introduce reasonable doubt. And it's just it's just a matter of, you know, sort of freedom, ultimately, and, you know, the system requiring that sort of adversity.
0: We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. As an aside, it always, I think, amuses, I I would say, me, the the consistent motions filed by defendants who who claim that, you know, sticks and stones, let's just say, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Um, If, (laughs) if, if the confession is true, if, if this guy is the one I'm just saying, you know, sometimes it's, it's like you think about um, what grace was withheld and what mercy was withheld from people who were violently murdered. And oftentimes uh, defendants seem to have very thin skin comparatively at the behest of our, again, tax dollars. Um, Your guys' podcast is so awesome, The Murder Sheet. You are fantastically diligent, detailed, um, absolutely top-notch intellectual caliber, and it's really a delight to listen to and to learn from you both. And I just wanted to conclude with one final question, which is, what are your final thoughts? What's next? What should we stay tuned for? And where can we hang out with bated breath for the next developments in this really explosive case?
1: Absolutely. And thank you so much, Emily, for your kind words. And we so appreciate the work you do and the diligence you have with this with this um, True Crime podcast. And I guess for us, we're just going to see what happens. I mean, we are going to continue to report on the trial. Uh, the pre-trial hearings, uh, the various documents that get released between now and a trial, and essentially try to keep an open mind, um, but also try to report the facts to the public so that they can have a better sense of basically what happened. I I think everybody wants to ultimately know why did this awful thing happen to these two beautiful girls? Why, Why did these families have to go through this? Why did this community have to go through this? I don't know if our reporting will ever really bring answers on that front, But at the very least, we can kind of bear witness and document what's going on in the state's attempt to secure justice for these girls.
0: Anya Kane and Kevin Greenlee, the amazing duo behind the Murder Sheet podcast. Thank you both so much for joining us today. And we look forward to connecting with you again after the next big developments in this tragic
1: case. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Emily.
0: To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.